If you're able, please stand and join me for the reading of God's word. The reading will come from Mark chapter 13, verses 31 through 37. Mark 13, 31 through 37. And this is the word of God. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants to charge, in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Mark chapter 13 is what's known as the Olivet Discourse. It's an apocalyptic discourse. Apocalypse simply means, hello, unveiling, unveiling. The Olivet Discourse, we see here that history's going somewhere. It's on the move. The Bible is God's record of redemptive history. A beginning that leads to a glorious end. And it's certain. Now sadly, uh, the prevailing understanding of history for most today is that it's simply um, a very long play that is going nowhere. That, you know, history is cyclical, the world will say. You know, it's just uh, recurring patterns of random events in life without any real meaning. It's typically the way the world thinks. Uh, But history is going somewhere very specific. All of life is moving towards the great finale, the consummation of the kingship of the Lord Jesus Christ. When he came the first time, He established the kingdom. When he comes back the second time, he'll consummate the kingdom by way of a new heaven and a new earth. When, as Revelation 11 says, from which we read this morning, when the kingdoms of the world become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. All enemies at that point will be destroyed. Now, those who read and believe the Holy Spirit-inspired, inerrant, infallible Word of God, that is the Bible, Christians, true believers, they know that there is yet a great day of reckoning to come. So oftentimes, um, you'll perhaps be asked this question, as I often am, um, do you believe that we're living in the last days? To which I always answer, Yes, we've been living in the last days since Christ's ascension. 
Now, for, for many in our day, that's not a good enough answer because the real question that's in their mind is, do you believe we're living in the last of the last days? Typically, that question is raised according to a combination of um, world news reports, number one, Second, a very poor understanding of eschatology. Eschatology means last things, end times. And a bad habit of interpreting scripture in light of the present. That's what they mean. Now, as I said last time, there's much confusion and disagreement in our day over the subject of eschatology, that is last things, mainly because of a misunderstanding of this, the Olivet Discourse. Matthew chapter 13 and its parallel accounts in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, which has given rise to several schools of thought. And again, there can only ever be one meaning to any given text. So if there are two or three interpretations of a particular text, guess what? Somebody's wrong. Someone is wrong. Last time, we were reminded that as we read this sermon, sermon, the Olivet Discourse, we must position ourselves with the disciples who stood there and heard our Lord in 33 AD. We must listen to what Jesus says in the image, imagery and the language used in that day. So I, I hope that you went away and I hope that you reevaluated things through a biblical contextual lens, which is very important. Because I know that last week's message was, was very difficult for some of you because you came with certain presuppositions as regards um, that first half of the Olivet Discourse. But we must hear Jesus' words as his Jewish disciples would have in the first century knowing very well as they did the Old Testament and apocalyptic-styled writing that comes from out of the Old Testament. That's key in understanding the Olivet Discourse. So I hope that you went home and grappled with any thoughts or interpretations that would contradict that key principle or any presuppositions that you came in with to understand that everything Jesus says up and through verse 27 happened in 70 AD. It already happened during the time between his ascension and the destruction of the temple for which Jesus is talking about, the temple then standing, and the, the, the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. Because the context of verses 1 through 30 relates to the predictions of God's wrath against first century Jerusalem, first century Israel. So we saw, notice, that the Lord gave the disciples many signs that would precede the coming destruction. Now remember, they just walked out of the temple, chapter 13, and when they walked out of the temple, verse 1 one of the disciples said, look, teacher, what wonderful stones and what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said, do you see these great buildings? These, these that are standing now, do you see them, right? 
There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And then in verse 4, as he sat opposite the temple on the Mount of Olives across the Kidron Valley, Peter, James, and John, and Andrew asked him privately, tell us when will these things be? Okay, what things? The things just described, the destruction of the then standing temple. Jesus then began to teach them See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name. Nation will rise against nation. That happened. That still happens. It happened then. Nations did rise. Kingdoms against kingdoms. There will be earthquakes in various places. I laid out a record of massive earthquakes that took place before 70 AD. He said, but the time is not yet. The time is not yet. What time? The time of the temple's destruction. That temple, not a future temple, that temple. The gospel must be proclaimed to all nations. We read in Colossians 1, we read in Romans that the, the gospel went out to all the world. That is all the known world, the Roman Empire. When you see the abomination of desolation standing where it ought not, let the reader understand, and again that takes us back to Daniel, Old Testament, let those who are in Judea flee. Luke tells us that the abomination of desolation is near when they, when they see the Roman armies surrounding, surrounding the temple. He says, when you see this, when you see that, get out of town, run for the hills. These are the signs. And then finally, after verse 24, that tribulation... The sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will be falling from heaven, and the powers of heaven will be shaken. We learned as we went back to the Old Testament, that's apocalyptic-styled writing as regards nations being pummeled by the judgment of God. Figurative language. Then we read, and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Now, we studied there. Again, that takes us back to Daniel. That's not a picture of Jesus coming from heaven to earth, but that's a picture in his victory of ascending to the Father, the glorified, resurrected God-man, presented before the Ancient of Days, and the Ancient of Days is God the Father, Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, to receive the kingdoms of this world. And he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty at this very moment, ruling in heaven. They will see, they will perceive and understand what Daniel 7 means. Christ the king has received power and authority. And he will send out from there angels, that word is messengers, to gather his elect from the four winds of the ends of the earth to heaven. And he's been doing that ever since. As the gospel goes out, he draws in those that are his unto salvation. Those are the signs preceding. And he goes on to say, truly I say to you, verse 30, this generation, that is, those people living right now, you disciples, this generation will not pass away until all these things, what things? Destruction of that temple take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away, verse 32, but concerning that day, what day? The day heaven and earth passes away, no one knows. 
the day is proceeding, the destruction of the temple. I'm giving you signs. I'm telling you, when you see it, get out of Dodge. You'll know the day. But when I'm about ready to bring a new heaven and a new earth down, new Jerusalem down, no one knows that day. Are you with me? Okay, so the next great act of redemptive history, the next event in redemptive history is not the, the battle of Armageddon. It has nothing at all to do with the state of Israel, nothing to do with mis- Middle Eastern politics, nothing to do with Iran, nothing to do with China. It's not the implanting of some microchip in your forehead. <laughs> do we get this? It's not some rebuilt temple in Jerusalem. It's not even a mass conversion of Jews toward the end of the age, if God in his grace so wills to do so. The next great act in redemptive history, the next great event for you and for me, is the coming of Jesus at the end of time, and that could be today. It's the wrapping up of history, it's the close of this world, and it's the formation of the new world, that is a new heavens and a new earth, for which we will dwell in glorified bodies with our glorified Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, forever and ever. So, whereas the signs that made it possible to know the nearness of Jerusalem's destruction and the tearing down of the temple for which Jesus was then speaking... Nothing will help you fix a date or the proximity of the Lord's return. Nothing. Well, actually, there is something, and we'll see it. We'll see it. Verse 28. From the fig tree, learn its lesson. As soon as its branch becomes tender and puts out its leaves, you know the summer is near. So also, when you see these things taking place, know that he is near. That can also be translated it. It is near at the very gates. It what? The destruction of the temple, verses 1 through 27. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things that I just told you about take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. Concerning that day, that hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven. So here now we, we, we see the eschaton of eschatology, the very last thing of last things. We just read it. We just read it. So Jesus, you see, now he, he's shifting a focus for his disciples who are standing right there before him from, from the near future event that will happen 40 years later from that time, 70 A.D., to a much more future time, and that is the second coming. So he's shifting their sights now. The first part in verses 1 through 27, Jesus again is responding to the disciples' question as regards the then standing temple. Here he lifts their eyes to something far greater and much more glorious, and that's his second coming. Are you with me? Oh, all right, good. So the first prophecy that we looked at last Lord's Day of the temple's doom was made known, and that is now past. Done. Not a future temple. Don't read that as a future temple. Read carefully. Read biblically. And that destruction foreshadows the great day 
the final day. So the destruction of the temple serves as a microcosm of the cosmos, if you will, when, when, when he comes and transforms in, in macrocosm form the close of history. So the temple, we could say, is a microcosm of the cosmos, the heavens, the universe, which he will transform and renew because right now it's under what? Curse. It's under a curse. That's why we have the law of entropy. Everything moves towards decay and destruction and death because of the curse due to sin. When he comes back, it's a new heaven and a new earth. No one knows that hour. No one. So the teaching here, very important, primarily our Lord's focus is not so much about the realities of the future in his return, but how he wants us to live until that day. That's what we see. Notice first the word but in verse 32. Now, it opens with the word but which implies a contrast between what he has previously said regarding the temple and its destruction, moving from the subject of Jerusalem and the temple to that of his second coming. Again, verse 32. I can't read it enough. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows. Notice, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, Jesus in his glory, does he now know? Well, most certainly, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. In his humanity as he stood there, he did not know the day of his return. So first point for us this morning is that no one knows when, which means we're in the company of angels who know not when. And yet, how many books and how many DVD series and how many charts and how many maps predict just that? There are books and literature ad nauseum, beloved. You know this. We're well aware of this. Hal Lindsey predicted Christ's return in the 1980s, the late great planet Earth. Edgar Wisenot wrote, 88 reasons Jesus will return in 1988. And he actually said this, if the Lord doesn't return in 1988, the Bible is wrong. <laughs> well, guess what? Nothing happened in Wisenot died in 2001. Harold Camping predicted that Jesus would return in 1994, and he says, oh, I got my math wrong. It's actually um, May 21st, 2012. Oh, that didn't happen. Uh, I have to recalculate. Oh, it's October 21st, 2012. Well, that date came, it went, and he died. Chuck Smith, uh, he was referred to when he was alive as a well-known prophecy teacher. Um, in his book, End Times, 1979, he predicted Jesus' return in 1981 using a very poor interpretation of verse 28 that reads... The budding of the fig tree, he interpreted as the rebirth of Israel in 1948. So then he came up with this silly mathematical calculation. It's 1948 plus 40, which is a generation, minus 7, a great tribulation, equals, guess what? 1981. It came, it went, he died. 
the Y2K scare. Remember that? A bunch of self-proclaimed prophecy teachers said in 1997, scaring most Christians half to death, it's all coming to an end because uh, January 1st, 2000, uh, microchips aren't going to know what to do. When the clock turns to 12, the market will crash, banks will close. The Bible says so, I heard one man say, citing Revelation 18, 17. He says, in one hour, it's all going to come to an end. The Bible says so, and here's what the Bible says in uh, verse 17, Revelation 18. For in a single hour, all this wealth has been laid waste. Most recently is what's known as the blood moon madness. People, do not be naive, because only the most naive fall prey to this stuff. Don't go there. And let me say this. Any speculation of the second coming based on the moon and stars is is a little more than Christian astrology. Come on, don't go there. It's nonsense. But still, people take the bait. Halls are, are filled listening to guys spout off the time of his second coming. Big mouths, big heads, who write books. Kelvin commented about this long ago. He said this, about men feeling uneasy, about not knowing that day. And I quote, it would be a proof of excessive pride and wicked covetousness to desire that we who creep on the earth should know more than is permitted to the angels in heaven. End quote. These date setters do great harm to the body of Christ. No man knows the hour, said Jesus. These date setters are poor witnesses of Christianity, and they provide fodder for enemies of the gospel. Well, there they go again. Right? Now, since Jesus is so clear about this, it amazes me that so many blatantly ignore his his, his, uh, uh, order here not to set dates. No one knows the hour. And whether it's Harold Camping or Chuck Smith or Hal Lindsey, Scripture says don't do it, and yet they do it. So don't listen to them, beloved. Amen? Don't listen. It's nonsense. So, since... (laughs) Since no one knows when Jesus is coming back, the only time when you know he's not coming back is when one of these fruitcakes predicts a date. We know that he wasn't coming back May 21st, 2012, right? Because no man knows the hour. No man, no angel in heaven knows. All it does is raise false hopes, disappointment, disillusionment, mistaken signs provide fear and anxiety. He he tells us not to have fear and not to be anxious. No man knows, so relax. Take a deep breath. Amen? No one knows the hour. That's the first thing. Second point, ignorance regarding his glorious return, and we all sit here ignorant this morning, amen? We're ignorance as regards his return. We're ignoramuses, and that's good. Where that's good. He says we will be. But that does not excuse disengagement, lethargy, 
In other words, not knowing the timing is no excuse for being ill-prepared. It's no excuse for being unprepared. He says, be prepared. As a matter of fact, notice, not knowing when actually stresses the fact of preparedness. Notice, verse 33, be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It's like a man going on a journey. When he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay what? Awake. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come. In the evening, or at midnight, or when the cock crows, or, <clears throat> or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. Now, that was the clock of the day. That was the clock of the day, verse 36, or verse 35. Evening, midnight, when the cock crows at three or so, or in the morning at dawn. You don't know. Stay awake. Now, for some, the apparent delay of Christ's return um, leads to pessimism, as we'll see. There are scoffers, and we're told that there will be scoffers in the last day. So we'll look at that in a little while. Others surrender to the status quo. Where is his return? Just let me connect myself to the culture and how they think. That's a danger for the Christian. We don't want to go there, amen? With that said, I want us to go back to Matthew 25, from which I read this morning. Turn to Matthew 25, the parable of the ten virgins. Now, friends, this is a picture of a Middle Eastern wedding. So uh, don't look at this as though it's an American wedding, because all the eyes are always on the bride. In a Middle Eastern wedding, all the eyes are on the groom. There were three parts of a Jewish marriage. There was the engagement, and usually that was arranged by the fathers, father of the bride-to-be and the groom-to-be. There was a betrothal, and then there was the actual marriage ceremony. So it's a very Jewish picture, and we read, the kingdom of heaven will be like ten virgins who took their lamps, went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish, five were wise. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. The wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, they all became drowsy and slept. So they all fell asleep, okay? But at midnight, there was a cry. Here's the bridegroom, finally. Finally, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps, and the foolish said to the wise, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. But the wise answered, saying, Since there will not be enough for us and for you, go gather to the dealers and buy for yourselves. Well, that's not very politically correct. Guess what? If you give some of yours away, there's none for anybody. And while they were going to buy, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the marriage feast, and the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us, open to us. And he answered, Truly I say to you, I do not know you. Watch, therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour. 
Now, often, the arrival of the groom was delayed. Um, he would be retrieving his bride to go back to his home for the great feast. And many times, he'd be in conversation, as far as I can tell from the study of history and such and culture, that he'd be in conversation with, with the uh, bride's parents, and they may hold him up for some length of time. So they're waiting, and they're waiting, and they're waiting, and they fall asleep. Suddenly, the, crime, the cry goes out, and the foolish are not prepared. They want to borrow. Lesson? We cannot trust in the spiritual readiness of another. Children, if you grow up, you're growing up in a Christian home, you cannot depend on the faith of your parents to get you to heaven. Unbelieving spouses, you cannot trust in the faith of your spouse to get you to heaven. It's faith and trust in Christ alone, one at a time. One at a time. So if we profess the Lord Jesus Christ in name only, right here we face eternal separation from God. Yeah, I'm a Christian. You know, I sing all the songs and I read the Bible, but you don't truly trust in Christ alone for your salvation. You believe there are many ways, perhaps. Guess what? You're not a Christian, says the Bible. Dangerous. So this story is putting forth the consequences of nominal unprepared, quote-unquote, Christianity. Don't be one of the foolish virgins is the lesson. Because when he comes and you knock, but Lord, he'll say, don't call me Lord. You say you know me, I don't know you. Can you imagine? So all of us must keep watch over our hearts, amen? Amen. We must examine ourselves. Are we truly trusting in him? Do we truly believe? Do we truly trust in Christ alone? Not trusting in your faith. Don't trust in your faith or the amount of faith you have. You want to trust in the what? Substance of our faith. It's Jesus alone. That's the lesson. Third, not knowing the day, not knowing the hour, is incentive to actually be about the master's business. Notice verse 34. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge. Now, where is Jesus preparing to go back to? In context to his preaching, back to heaven. And he's leaving who in charge? His disciples. And then we, we, we've been handed the torch generation to generation. We, we carry the same torch so Jesus returns to heaven, and we, we have a task to carry out. And he commands notice, even the doorkeeper, a doorkeeper, a doorman, stay awake. Don't fall asleep at the door. Be ready. So we must live day by day as though he may return this afternoon, or perhaps be prepared and continue to be prepared as though he may not return in our lifetime. Preparedness. Therefore, verse 35, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in evening, or at midnight, or when the cock crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. Very important. Now, let me say this. Over the last 40 years, there's been a lot of teaching that I believe is wrong. 
And I know a lot of people who kind of check out from being engaged in the Christian life and within the church, and they just kind of throw their hands up as they hear the news, and they say, you know what? I'm done. I'm, I'm, I'm just waiting for the rapture. I'm just waiting, waiting to be just sucked out of this world. Have you heard that before? Have you ever heard that? I have heard that. Now, let me say this. I never even heard about a secret rapture. I grew up in Reformed circles. I never heard this, the, this man-made theology. I believe it's a man-made theology about a secret takeaway rapture. Until a movie came out in the 1970s, you might remember this, um, Thief in the Night. Remember that? Ten minutes to midnight, scaring people half to death. That Christ is going to come and, and, and take away a bunch of people and, and leave a bunch of people behind. And then there's going to be upheaval in the world and all this. That's when I heard it. When I moved to California and I made friends with evangelicals in Southern California, uh, I, 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 I found this, that, that most of them are, are obsessed by that, that line of teaching. So people know, in and, and, and full disclosure, I tried to adopt it. I could never prove it biblically at all. So people will ask me, sometimes aggressively, so leader, that's my last name in case you don't know, do you believe in a rapture? I go, well, yeah, but if you mean a, a secret dog whistle rapture takeaway, no, I do not. It's not in scripture. What is taught is that at the second coming of Jesus Christ, those who are alive will be caught up. So rapture is, is, is a good word, no doubt. They will be caught up and changed. But according to scripture, there's nothing secret about it. There'll be a shout, a loud sharp shout and, and, and a last trumpet blast. There's only one last trumpet. The, the dead in Christ will be raised first, and we who are alive will be caught up to be with the Lord forever. And every time I say that, someone inevitably opens to Matthew 24, and they hold out verse 40, and they, see, they say, see, it's right there. Two men will be in the field, one will be taken, and one will be, hello, left. So let's look at that. Let's look at that together. Matthew 24. Okay, what, what does Jesus mean uh, by what he says here? Okay, notice it's the Olivet Discourse, Matthew's account. Notice again from verse 32, uh, from the fig tree learn its lesson. As soon as its branches become tender and put out its leaves, you know the summer is near. So also when you see all these things, that is all the things regarding the destruction of that temple, know that the time is near, the very gates. Truly I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all these things take place. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will not pass away. But concerning that day, second coming, that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven for the son, but only the father. For as, now notice, for as were the days of Noah so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying, giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark, and they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all what? Away. Judgment took them away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then, 
Two will be in the field and one will be taken. Taken into what? Judgment. Swept away. And one will be left. What happened to Noah? He was left. Unbelievers were taken away in judgment. Swept away in judgment. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. Taken into judgment. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake. He would not have left his house to be broken into. Therefore, you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming in an hour you do not expect. So guess what? As a friend of mine said once, you want to be left behind. According to the text, you want to be left behind. You don't want to be taken away into judgment, as in Noah's day. Because when he comes back, he's bringing a new heaven and a new earth. You want to be left there. (laughs) Not taken away into judgment. That's the meaning of the text. Otherwise, you're reading into it. So, What will precede the reckoning that is coming? What will precede his coming? Right there in verses 34 to 44, Jesus provides information about what the very last days will look like. And notice, he does not point to global catastrophes. He doesn't point out any kind of calamities. But instead, he says humanity will be carrying on immersed in the everyday routines of life. Working in the field, grinding at the mill, you'll be going to weddings, you'll be going to receptions, and boom, he comes, unexpectedly. Those are the signs of the last days. Life goes on as usual. In other words, the world will be caught completely off guard. We will be engaged in normal routines of life, farming, fellowship, marriage. It will be so unexpected and so unannounced, it will catch people in the middle of everyday routines. That's what he says. There it is, as the days of Noah. And the floods came. Noah stayed. So there is no hint of a sudden supernatural event or a rapture that removes people from the earth. It's not there, beloved. And I say that in love. We have to reevaluate our presuppositions in light of the meaning of the text. Very important. So there's another warning in that text. Notice, being close to a believer will not save you. Two will be in the same bed, Luke says. One will be taken, one will be left. One will be taken to judgment, one will be left. So you can be a spouse married to an unbeliever. The unbeliever's taken away in judgment. The believer's left. Know this, verse 43, the master of the house had known what time the thief is coming. He would have stayed awake, right? So notice Jesus here, obviously, is not comparing himself to the character of a thief, but the coming of a thief. Thieves do not provide a courtesy call. 
yeah, I'm going to be breaking into your house at 3.30 a.m. Just this is a courtesy call. Amen? Now, some will ask in frustration, why the delay? Okay, we've been preaching that Christ is coming back all our lives. Amen? My grandpa, who I never met, I never met him, was a great godly man and used to tell my daddy, the youngest of nine, son, I believe Jesus' return is right around the corner. Guess what? He's right. So some ask, why the delay? I mean, it seems strange. We, we, we keep proclaiming, he's coming, he's coming. It's like standing at a bus stop. Sean, the bus is coming, trust me. So we stand there together. The, the bus is coming. Where's the bus, John? Well, it's coming, I promise. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming, coming. And it never comes. People get frustrated, waiting. But, friends, the Bible anticipates that frustration. Are you still with me? The Bible anticipates, and the Bible anticipates those who will scoff at the delay. This was actually a, a concern in the first century when Peter, according to the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote about it. Look at it in 2 Peter 3. Oh, I have it. Yeah, 2 Peter 3. So just, just follow along. If I can find it. Is that New Testament or Old Testament? Just kidding. <laughs> okay, verse 3. Knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing, following their own sinful desires. They will say, where's the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlook this fact, that the heavens existed long ago, and the earth was formed out of water and through water by the word of God. And that by means of these, the world that then existed would, would deluge with water and it perished. The flood. But by the same word, the heavens and earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. That with the Lord, a day is a thousand years, and a thousand years is as one day. So guess what? Since Jesus returned, he's been gone for two days. Two. According to the Lord's timetable. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. Since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Waiting for and hastening the coming day of God because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved and the heavenly bodies will melt away as they burn. But according to his promise, we're waiting for New heavens, new earth. Not a secret takeaway. Not a dog whistle. Sorry. A new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Beautiful, isn't it? So the delay of the Lord's return is not because he's forgotten his promise, beloved. It is that Jesus is merciful and patient in that he will draw to himself all that the Father has, what? Given to him. 
all that he has been given will come to him. And when the last one is called effectually, the end. It's a wrap. That's it. So how do we prepare for this great reckoning? Notice verse 33, be on guard. Notice, be on guard. Keep awake, for you do not know when that time will come. So from the resurrection of our Jesus, from our Lord Jesus Christ, of our Lord Jesus Christ, we've been living in the last days, amen? We've been in the last days ever since. And according to scripture, between these two advents is a very short period of time as regards the Lord's clock. Very short. So may we be awake. You know, Martin Luther had it right. You know, he was once asked, Martin, what will you do if you knew the Lord was coming back tomorrow? You know what he said? I'd plant a tree in my garden. You think about that? In other words, he's not trying to foster some last-minute piety, like that terrible bumper sticker, look busy, Jesus is coming. <laughs> you ever seen that? I see this guy who lives in his van. And I've met him, and I know he's not a Christian, but he has that bumper sticker on his van. Look busy, Jesus is coming back. <laughs> Foolish. He knows the heart. You can't bolster up piety. It's not there. What Luther meant is, I'm simply going to live out the grace that's been granted to me in Christ. I'll plant a tree in my garden. I think it was... Uh, Charles Wesley, I think, he was asked the same question, and he opened up his, uh, uh, his little day timer, and he said, well, um, if he was coming back tomorrow, I, I'd be at the um, women's Bible study at 8 that I'm leading, and then at noon I'd be here, and then at 2 o'clock I'd be there. Doing God's will and just carrying on. I don't need to bolster up some false piety. And really, I think what, what Luther had in mind comes out of Titus chapter 2. Look at it. Verse 11, for the grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. That means all kinds of people, kings, paupers, you name it. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, there's comfort in that tree, Luther's tree. And what I mean by that, there's comfort in that manner of thinking. There's comfort in, you know, the thought of just planting a tree in my garden, and that's due to another tree, and it's the cross. Because on that tree, a great reckoning was poured out upon the Son of God. God's wrath was poured out. An innocent man, the God-man, laid down his life so that the justice of God would be borne by him and not by those who deserve it. Me. You. That reckoning. Justice did fall. Jesus became the lightning rod of God's wrath instead of me. A reckoning took place on that day. So at the cross, we can find shade and comfort from the apocalyptic judgment 
that's coming because that judgment struck Christ in our place. So we find rest and shade under the cross. Amen? That's what I mean by those two trees. That's what Luther thought. Look it, there's only one who bore a cross. All other religious gurus throughout time are false. They never bore a cross. Well, there's been many religious leaders in life. They're all false. They teach half-truths, and they provide you with empty promises. They give you lying advice, lying advice in how to right your own wrongs. Just do good. Do the best you can. And they try to, to help you alter your conscience so you can go living on a happy life. After all, it's about being happy, isn't it? Wrong. There's only one. And it's Jesus the Christ. So therefore, cling to Christ who bore God's wrath on that tree. And then when you're asked, what would you do when Jesus is coming tomorrow? You'd say, oh, I'd plant a tree in my garden. Amen? So history is his story. It's not cyclical. It's moving in one direction. Jerusalem was destroyed. The end of Judaism, 70 A.D., they had 40 years to repent. They rejected Messiah. Judgment came, as Jesus said. That foreshadows the final judgment. Nothing else is to take place. No sign other than life is going on as usual. Are you ready? Are you awake? There's no date given. So verse 37, what I say to you, context, you, my disciples, standing there before that temple, what I say to you, now I say to all. And that includes us at Pacific Hope Church this morning. Stay awake. Stay awake. You know, if I preach this sermon every week, no one would sleep literally through the sermon. Because I haven't seen one droopy eye today. <laughs> Five times, notice Jesus warns them. Be alert, verses 33 to 37. Watch, be on guard, keep away, be vigilant. Remain. Christ will come at a time when no one's looking. You may be mowing your yard. I love to mow my yard. I love the smell of fresh cut grass, right, Mark? I love it. You could be mowing your yard. You could be on the golf course if your shoulder's not too bad. Moms, you could be changing a diaper. You could be making dinner. You all could be having dinner together somewhere, and boom, there he is. In other words, life will be so normal, so mundane, so boring, so routine that the tendency will be to fall asleep. He says, stay awake. There's no cataclysmic falling from the sky stuff that's going to happen before he comes. Life goes on as usual. Then, if we don't realize that, we'll say, man, I got all the time in the world. Boom. Boom. He comes. So the significant matter at hand as I close up, there's a day coming, friends, when it will be too late. Too late. The ten virgins cry out, right? Five of them, Lord, Lord. Five cry out, Lord, Lord, open for us. He says, I don't know you. Don't be that person. I beg you. Don't live off the faith of your parents. I beg you. Don't live off the faith of your spouse. I beg you, don't live off the faith of your mama or daddy. Repent and believe and entrust yourself to Jesus Christ. So when he comes back, 
you'll be left in a new heaven and a new earth with the king of glory forever. And the door won't be shut on you. Amen? So we need not be afraid if Jesus comes back while you're relaxing. You need not be afraid if you're cheering on your favorite team when Jesus comes back. You need not be afraid if you're reading a book when Jesus comes back. Because if it's okay to do those things now, it's okay if we're doing them when he comes back. So in other words, we don't have to work up false piety and, and look busy like the bumper sticker says. The point, the question is, will I be prepared to meet him whenever he comes? And the only way you can be prepared to meet him is if all of your faith and trust is in him alone. Not Jesus gives me a little boost and now I work my way into favor with him. No, my trust is in him alone and my righteousness is his righteous robes that cloak me. He bore my sin on that cross, and as a gift of grace, I get his righteousness that enables me to stand positionally right before God. That's trust, that's faith, and the door will not be shut on you. So you, if you're taking a nap, will be given a new body at that moment. Amen? Because you're in him. Where is my faith? Where is my trust? Where is your faith? Where is your trust this morning? Is it in the master? The groom? The king? Or in yourself? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. Father, we thank you. And ask, Lord, in this hour that there is no greater priority for us than to make sure that our hearts are prepared to meet our Lord your son, when he comes back, trusting in him alone. So, Lord, I ask um, that you would implant in each one of us a desire for him, a desire for his kingdom above all else, that we would uh, truly trust, not in ourselves, not in our own faith, but in the substance of our faith, your gospel, your son, our Lord. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.